podcast. Today, we're going to be taking a look at Pandemonium as presented in AT&T First Edition Manual of the Planes. Now, when we discuss Pandemonium, we don't really have a mythological equivalent, but there is a literary one. Pandemonium appears in John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, where he describes it as the capital of hell. It is here that Satan and his angels meet to, di- to discuss their uh, various problems and the course of action that they intend to take. It is described as follows. Meanwhile, the winged heralds, by command of sovereign power with awful ceremony, at trumpet sound throughout the host proclaim, a solemn capital forthwith to be held at pandemonium, the high capital of Satan and his peers. Their summons called from every band and squared regiment. By place or choice the worthiest they anon, with hundreds and with thousands trooping came, attended. All access was thronged, the gates, the porches wide, the chief, the spacious hall, though like a covered field where champions bold want ride in armed, and at the soldan's chair defied the best of uh, Paynim's chivalry to mortal combat or career with lance. Thick swarmed both on the ground and in the air, brushed with the hiss of rustling wings, as bees in springtime when the sun with Taurus rides, pour forth their populous youth about the hive in clusters. They, among fresh dews and flowers, to and fro, or on the smoothed plank, the suburb of their straw-built capital, new rubbed with balm, expedite and confer their state affairs, so thick the airy crowd." So, it's described that Satan and his angels actually had to build pandemonium. They didn't just come around and find an ancient uh, abandoned city. Now, he does use some interesting uh, ways to describe the capital at other parts in the poem. He, for example, mentions darkness visible, which is implied that, well, of course, this seems kind of a contradictory term, but darkness visible meaning that it only allows you to see terrible things. So the reason I bring up the darkness part, though, is that actually fits very well with how Pandemonium is pictured in 1st Edition Manual of the Plains. So we'll explain why in just a moment. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, or we're just horrifically bad puns. We've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. And we're back. 
Manual of the Plains pictures pandemonium as close to the definition of the word, and that is a wild uproar or chaotic situation. It's described as being a plane of chaotic neutral evils, as it's situated between the abyss and limbo. So on one side, you've got pure chaotic evil. On the other side, you've got pure chaotic neutral. So again, that, that mid-ground there. In Manual of the, of the Plains, they mention there's three words that are usually used to describe pandemonium. Dark, windy, and noisy. It's described as being a plain of solid rock filled with large, dark caverns that are constantly pelted by wind, which can range from, you know, a, a breeze that's going to, you know, lift uh, your clothing a little bit and make your hair blow back and look really cool, to full hurricane force winds. The gravity of this plane is unusual as it's described to be along the walls. So a traveler can easily walk up to a wall, walk up it, and then walk along the ceiling. So that could make some interesting combat situations in there. It's described as having four planes. The first is Pandesmos, and it's described as being the a realm of very large caverns, and it is also the most populated of the four layers. The second plane is Cocytus. It is the name of a Greek river in the underworld whose name means lamentation. Now, if you listen to my episode on the Nine Hells, you might also recognize that name, as it is the name that Dante gave to the lowest level of hell in the Inferno. In that poem, though, he described it as being a frozen lake and home to the betrayers. Now, Cocytus is also mentioned in Paradise Lost, where it is mentioned alongside other rivers of the Greek underworld. Of four infernal rivers that disgorge into the burning lake their baneful streams, abhorred sticks, the flood of deadly hate, sad Acheron of sorrow, black and deep, Cocytus, named of lamentation loud, heard on the rueful stream, Fierce Phlegathon, whose waves of torment fire and flame with rage. Far off from these, a slow and silent stream, Levy, the river of oblivion, rolls her watery labyrinth, whereof who drinks forthwith his former state and being forgets. Forgets both joy and grief, pleasure and pain. Beyond this flood, a frozen continent, lies dark and wild, beat with perpetual storms of whirlwind and dire hail, which on firm land thaws not, but gathers heap and ruin seems of ancient pile, all else deep snow and ice, a gulf profound as the Serbonian bog. So in Manual of the Plains, they describe it as the layer of lamentation, which again is very fitting as the... uh, Again, the name means lamentation, and as we saw in uh, Paradise Lost there, also had that association. It's said that this realm, though, is primarily made of tunnels, which show signs of having been carved out by tools, though it's not known who made them. The winds here 
bring cries of sorrow and grief. And it's said that those who spend too much time here have a chance of going insane. The third layer is Phlegathon, which, as we already know, was described as the river of fire in the Greek underworld. Now, this realm, though, is quite different from its namesake, as the walls here are extremely dark, so they absorb most light. So, infravision is totally useless here, and not only that, it's said that because the walls do such an efficient job at absorbing light, any illumination source is cut by half. This is actually described as a wet layer, which again makes it uh, quite different from its namesake, and there's many rivers and streams here. The last layer is Agathion, and this is an interesting layer because it's a solid mass of rock with sealed-off caverns that the winds still blow around in. And it's said that going into some of these bubbles can be dangerous because some of them are complete vacuum. This is also said to serve as a place of imprisonment for extremely powerful monsters or beings that the gods do not want awakened. Now, it's described that most of the inhabitants of Pandemonium are exiles, people being imprisoned, or people who were trapped here because, well, they somehow wound up on this plane and they don't have the means to go back to their home. There are several historical deities that are listed as being uh, residents of this plane. First is the Babylonian god Anshar. He is the grandson of Tiamat, uh, a primordial sky god, and one of the parents of Anu. Anu is the supreme sky god and father of the Anunnaki in Babylonian mythology. What we do know of Anshar, most of it comes from a poem that I've talked about several times in uh, various episodes, and that is Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation story. He's mentioned several times, but he doesn't really have a very active role. He's pictured as more of an advisor. He doesn't really take much of an active role in the uh, events that occur in that, that story. I'm not really sure I would put him here, though, as he would seems like he is more in line with being on Nirvana with Anu. Again, seems more of a lawful neutral type as opposed to a chaotic neutral or chaotic evil type. There are a couple of Finnish deities here named Tuonatar and Tuoni, and they inhabit a realm Tuonla which I already discussed a little bit on my episode in on Gehenna. Tuonla is similar to the Hebrew underworld of Sheol, in that it's described as being a place of darkness, stillness, and quiet. So in that regards, very opposite to Pandemonium. It's definitely got the darkness aspect going, but uh, both Sheol and Tuonla are not pictured as being noisy or windy places. Now, like Sheol, Tuwanla was the place where all people went after they died, regardless of their deeds in life. So again, 
didn't man didn't matter if you were a great hero or a dastardly villain, you would end up into Wanla. It's said that there is a river here called Manala, and those who drink of it are robbed of their desire to do anything. So they just kind of sit there and eventually waste away and die. There is also a swan here called Tuwunlin Joustin, and this is a swan that sings mournful songs. It was said that the hero Lymankainen tried to kill or capture the bird on his journey to the underworld, but he was instead killed in the process, and he was later rescued by his mother. So taking a look at the two deities here, we have first Tuwani, and this is the king of the underworld. Now, I couldn't really find much about him other than that he was the husband of Tuwanatar and the father of their five daughters, one of which was Lovatar, who I also discussed in the episode on Gehenna. We know a little bit more about Tuwanatar. She is the queen of the underworld and its hostess. There was one story where the great hero Venomayan, and I probably mispronounced that, uh, goes to the underworld and Tuwanatar offers him a drink, which is known as the Beer of Oblivion. Now, the hero looked closer at this drink before drinking it and discovered it was actually made of vile things like uh, tadpoles, poison, frogs, snakes, worms, and lizards. So, of course, he wisely avoided drinking it because it was said whoever drank the beer would be unable to leave the underworld because they quite simply forgot that they ever existed. The final deity they place here is the Norse trickster, Loki. It's said he inhabits a great keep called the White Citadel. Now, if we look at Pandemonium as a plane of exiles, it's very fitting that Loki would make a home here, because as we see in Norse mythology, he's constantly falling in and out of favor with the other gods. Now, thanks to the Thor comics, most people know Loki as Thor's adopted brother. But in reality, he's actually Odin's blood brother. Though Thor and Loki did go on many adventures together. He is a shapeshifter. And as I said before, he uh, is known for falling in and out of favor with the other gods. One example is the story of the creation of the walls of Asgard. It was said that the gods hired a giant to build this wall. Um, And he said that he could build it in a day. And if he was able to build this wall in a day, then he would get the sun, the moon, and the Norse goddess of beauty and love, Freya, as his payment. Well, the gods were a bit... they, They were a bit concerned about this. They thought maybe this giant was going to be playing some kind of trick upon on them, especially since you know, it was said that he only would do this with the help of his horse. Well, Loki assured the other gods that it would be okay to accept the god, this uh, giant on his offer. Well, the gods were getting alarmed because it looked like the giant was going to finish his task on time. 
So the gods demanded that Loki find a way to get them out of this predicament. So Loki turned into a female horse and distracted the giant's horse so that it would run away after him and the giant wouldn't be able to finish his task on time. Well, it was said that Loki got pregnant from this little encounter and gave birth to Odin's horse, Sleepnir. So that reminds me of a picture I've seen go around Facebook every now and then. I just think this is so funny. Uh, Usually my geeky friends, especially my comic book geek friends, usually pass this picture around on Mother's Day. Uh, There's a picture of Loki as he's depicted in the Thor movies. And there's a a Sleepnir handing him a card that says, Happy Mother's Day. So... Again, if if you ever saw that and were kind of like looking at it like, huh? That's where that joke originated from. I just thought that was pretty clever. Well, there's also another story where he's actually plays a very important role as he gets the gods out of trouble in this case. And this is a poem called the Thyram Skiva, or Thyram's Poem. I'm sorry, I think it's pronounced uh, Thyram's Skid. Skidvita? Well, anyways. Now, in this poem, the giant Thyrum steals Thor's hammer. Loki discovers this and finds out that the reason that Thyrum stole Thor's hammer is he wants to exchange it for Freya to take as his wife. Now, they never really mention how Thyrum managed to steal the, the hammer, So it'd be interesting to learn uh, that story. But needless to say, Freya did not want to to marry a giant. And Heimdall, the watchman of the gods, came up with a plan. His plan was to disguise Thor as Freya. And Loki would also go in disguise as, as the handmaiden. Now, of course, Thor doesn't want to do this, you know, and, and this this poem, one of the reasons I like is it's, in a way, it's very satirical because Thor is, you know, the manliest of the gods, you know, very strong, very powerful, you know, very manly men. So he was concerned about being dressed up as a woman because, as the poem describes it, he thinks that the other gods would consider him a pervert. And... Uh, Loki, he actually talks back to Thor, saying, Be quiet, Thor. Don't speak those words. The giants will be settling in Asgard unless you get your hammer back. So I'm going to read the ending part of the poem, and this is from the Carolyn Larrington translation of the Poetic Edda from Oxford University Press. Again, long-time listeners to the show, whenever I read uh, passages from Norse poetry, this is the, the book that I usually go to. So Thor and Loki, in their disguises, arrive at Thyram's land, and he greets the disguised gods by saying, Gold-horned cows walk here in the yard, jet-black oxen to the giant's delight. Many treasures I possess, many necklaces I possess. Freya was all I seemed to be missing. They came together there, Early in the evening, an ale was brought for the giants. He, as in Thor, ate one whole ox, ate salmon, 
all the dainties meant for the women. The husband of Sif drank three casks of mead. And then Thyram, lord of ogres. Where have you seen a lady eating more ravenously? I have never seen any woman with a bigger bite, nor any girl drink so much mead. The very shrewd maid, Loki, sat before him. She found an answer to the giant's speech. Freya ate nothing for eight nights, so madly eager was she to come to giant land. He bent under the veil, he wanted to kiss her, but he sprang back instead right down the hall. Why are Freya's eyes so terrifying? It seems to me that fire is burning from them. The very shrewd maid sat before him. She found an answer to the giant's speech. Freya did not sleep for eight nights, so madly eager was she to come to giant land. In came the wretched sister of the got giants. She dared to ask for the bride's wedding gift. Give me the red gold rings from your hands if you want to merit my love, my love, and all my favor. Then Thyram, lord of ogres, bring in the hammer to sanctify the bride, lay Molnir on the girl's lap, consecrate us together by the hand of Var. Thor's heart laughed in his breast, for he, stern in courage, recognized the hammer. First he stuck Thyram, lord of ogres, and battered all the race of giants. He killed the old sister of the giants, she who had asked for the bridal gift. Striking she got instead of shillings, and a blow of the hammer instead of many rings. So Odin's son got the hammer back. Now another story where Loki gets the gods into a predicament, but then gets them out, has to do with the story of the giant Thazi and his daughter Skadi. Now it was said that uh, Thor and Loki, in one of their travels, they tried to cook an ox to, to eat. But there was a giant uh, bird that was preventing the ox from cooking. And they the this giant bird was actually the giant Thazi in disguise. And he said that he'd allow the ox to cook, but only if they gave him a bite. Well, after cooking the ox, uh, Thazi took a larger portion than Loki thought was fair. So Lo Loki attempted to strike him with a staff, but the weapon stuck to Thazi's body and he flew away. Well, here's where Thazi made a deal with Loki. He would let him go, but only if he brought him Iduna who was the Norse goddess who gathered the apples of youth. Well, through Loki's trickery, he lured Iduna into a trap, and then the, uh, of course, Thazi came and swooped down and tried to take her away. So, of course, the gods uh, realized that they had to get uh, Iduna back, so uh, they had Loki take Freya's cloak that would allow the wearer to turn into a falcon. And so Loki flew over to uh, Thazi's land, and he managed to find Iduna. So he transformed her into a nut so he could pick her up and carry her away. Well, as Loki flew away with Iduna, uh, Thazi uh, also turned into a great bird and flew after him. 
Now, as they approached Asgard, the gods laid a trap, and they took Thazi down and killed him. Well, Thazi had a daughter, Skadi, and vengeance was a sacred thing in Norse culture, so she knew that she had to avenge her father's death. So she took up weapons and armor and went to Asgard. Now, the gods didn't want to fight her, so they offered to make a payment with her. They offered to atone with her. So first, they took Thazi's eyes and put them in a sky as a constellation, which I've heard a couple different theories as to what constellation they were intended to represent. Uh, Some people think that the stars of Canis Minor, the little dog, are supposed to represent that constellation. I've also heard that the two stars, uh, Castor and Pollux and Gemini, are supposed to be that constellation. Now, the other compensation they offered is that she would be able to choose one of the gods to be her husband, but she'd have to choose by looking at the god's feet. Well, she saw the most beautiful-looking pair of feet and thought it belonged to Balder, but instead it belonged to Nord. And their marriage didn't quite really go too, too well because Nord was associated with the summer and with the the ocean, whereas Scotty was associated with winter and the mountains. So their marriage wasn't exactly ideal because they were so opposite to each other. Now, the final condition was that uh, the gods had to make Scotty laugh. So this is where Loki comes to the rescue again. Now, in some translations I've seen of the story, he ties a rope around the genitals of a goat and then ties the other end of the rope around his own genitals and they dance and prance around and that made Scotty laugh. However, Loki does have a dark side to him. Uh, It was said that he was the one who tricked the blind god Hoder into murdering his brother Balder. Because after Balder was born, Frigg, uh, Odin's wife, made everything in the world swear not to hurt him. The only exception was mistletoe. So one day the gods were amusing themselves by throwing different weapons and such at Balder and watching them bounce off harmlessly. But uh, Loki had created a, well, some translations say an arrow, other versions say a dart, but he made a weapon of mistletoe and he used that to, he tricked Hoder into using that to kill Balder. Now, he's also known as the father of monsters, as with his giant wife, they he fathered three children. First, Hel, the goddess of the underworld. Second, uh, the world serpent, Jormunder. I think that's how it's pronounced. I can never pronounce it correctly. And then finally, the uh, Fenris wolf. Now, another poem about Loki is Lokisena, or Loki's quarrel. Now, in this poem, the gods are having a feast to uh, kind of ease the loss of, of losing Balder. And during this feast, Loki basically barges his way in, and he. it's actually a very interesting poem in the way it's structured, where Loki will uh, have different dialogues with each of the gods and goddesses, uh, insulting them. At the end of the poem, Thor shows up, which pretty much scares Loki away. 
Well, the uh, gods eventually captured Loki. They bound him in the underworld and they used the sun, they used the uh, intestines of one of his sons, Narfi, to bind him to rock. And a poisonous serpent was placed over his head. Well, one of Loki's wives would use a bowl to catch the poison. However, when she had to go empty it, Loki would be have venom dripped upon him and he would writhe in pain and that's what was said to cause earthquakes. So that's a little bit of mythology behind some of the gods of pandemonium. Now, as far as how you could use it in a campaign, honestly, I think there's a couple ways you could use it. Since it is a plane of exiles, you could have an adventure where the players are stranded here. Or maybe they do some misdeed and they're sent here by an angry deity or an angry wizard. So they have to try to find a way out, which could involve making bargains with other people who also want to get out. And since this is the plane of chaotic neutral and chaotic evils, you're going to have to be careful dealing with some of the people who might be trying to help, and I'm doing the air quotes there, them get out of this plane. Now, as I mentioned before, the fourth layer is one that's a place of imprisonment. So, again, if you're doing an evil campaign, maybe your characters are tasked to go to this layer where they have to release some great monster to cause chaos and evil. Or, on the other hand, you could just as easily make an adventure focused on binding a powerful monster and somehow trying to find a way to imprison it in this layer. Well, that's a little bit about Pandemonium. And next episode, we're going to cover the last of the Outer Planes discussed in Manual of the Planes, and that's going to be the Twin Paradises. And I have a feeling this is probably going to be a short episode, because, like I said, there's not really a historical or literary counterpart to the Twin Paradises that I was able to find. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you all for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross-promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com, and we'll set something up.